Now, I am delighted to introduce Karen Corsano and Daniel Willeman, longtime members of the Athenaeum. She was born and educated in Boston. He grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. They met in the 60s in Toronto, where they both took graduate degrees in medieval studies. She recently retired as head programmer for the nurses' health study at the Channing Laboratory, Harvard School of Public Health. He is Professor Emeritus of Latin and History, Binghamton University. They married in 2003, live in Cambridge and Buzzards Bay, and collaborate in research and writing mostly on 14th century subjects, but since they discovered the story that they told in their 2014 book, John Singer Sargent and His Muse, they have continued a deep study of Sargent's world, and that's the world we shall explore this evening. We're in for a treat tonight. Their talk will focus on 1890, the year Sargent painted a portrait of his Boston friend, Annie Adams Fields. That portrait, one of the Athenaeum's great treasures, has recently returned triumphantly from Stockholm, where it featured in a major Sargent exhibition in the recently reopened Nationalmuseum of Sweden. After the talk, we invite all of you to separate yourselves briefly, only briefly, from your wine glasses, your hors d'oeuvres, and your bags, for just a few minutes, for an up-close viewing of that magnificent portrait, along with several other portraits of Annie Adams Fields from our collections. The viewing will be upstairs on the second floor in the Verschbau reading room. Don't miss this opportunity, even without the sergeant, which is, by the way, Magnificent. Did I say that already? There is a stunningly gorgeous miniature on ivory of Annie that would alone be worth the price of admission. Don't miss this opportunity. Second floor, right after the talk. Now, to tell us more about Sargent and Annie Adams Fields and her dazzling artistic, social, and intellectual world right here on Beacon Hill, Let's warmly welcome Karen Corsano and Daniel Willeman back to this podium. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that kind introduction. The Swedish National Museum opened last year after five years of uh, uh, renovations with the first exhibition ever in Scandinavia devoted to John Singer Sargent. The Boston Athenaeum lent this treasure, Sargent's portrait of Annie Adams Fields. The curator of the show told us he wanted her to preside over Sargent's pictures of the confident, independent new woman. Our talk this evening is her formal welcome back home. Sargent painted hundreds of women, the rich and famous, the noble and artistic, family and friends. He never painted a more interesting woman than the hostess, social reformer, 
women's rights advocate, author, and Athenaeum member, Annie Adams Fields. He painted her in his crucial American year of 1890. Before and after that, whenever Sargent was in Boston or Annie in London, they fostered their mutual admiration and shared their overlapping circles of friends. Annie was born in Boston in 1834 to Dr. Zabdiel Boylston Adams, a cousin of the President's Adams, and his wife, Sarah May Holland, a cousin of the literary Alcott's. Annie's father was a successful and respected doctor and a strong exponent of women's education. His daughters got the best instruction possible, including math and science, Latin, French, and Italian. After their father's death in 1855, the old, Annie's oldest sister, Sarah, was her mother's companion and caretaker until her death in 1877. Then Sarah, in her mid-50s, went to Europe and became a noted translator from German. The next sister, Lizzie, became a working artist. Here's her sketch of Annie. She never became prolific or celebrated, but she did run a successful art school in Baltimore. The next sibling was a boy, Boylston, who became a doctor like his father. Then came Annie, followed by the baby of the family, Louisa, who married a rich widower, had children of her own, and lived the domestic life typical of the time. From her childhood, Annie was enthralled by literature. She tells a story from her school days. One recitation day, her choice was Tennyson's Lady of Shalott. Annie recounted how her soul was full of the gleam and glory of Camelot. She felt as if she were unlocking a treasure house, and it was, one, and it was with unspeakable pleasure to herself that she gave verse after verse the entire poem, all 180 lines. Long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold and meet the sky, and through the field the road runs by to many-towered Camelot. The yellow-leaved water lily, the green-sheathed daffodilly, tremble in the water chilly round about Shalott. Annie continued, her whole little self seemed to drift away into the land of fairy, and when the child at length sat down, scarcely knowing where she was, she heard her teacher say, can you tell us what that poem means? I thought it explained itself, was her plaintive reply. <laughs> One joy had faded from her life. Not even her teacher could feel what lay deep down in her own glowing heart. In 1854, Annie married James T. Fields of Tickner and Fields, the elite and successful publisher of the notable American and English writers of the day. Fields made the reputation of the house by paying royalties, even to English authors whose works had usually been pirated in the States and by producing the best writing of the day in beautiful editions. In 1861, the publishers took over the Atlantic Monthly and Fields edited that as well. Annie was 20 and Jamie was 37 when they married. They never had children. Annie was a judicious editor with an eye for talent, a real helpmate to her husband in his business. And they were truly in love and happily immersed together in contemporary literature and cultivated society. In 1862, just as Boston was beginning to expand into the Back Bay, they moved into a house built for them at 148 Charles Street. 
On the street floor, it was a typical row house with a little entry hall, parlor, and dining room. But upstairs, one long green-carpeted drawing room stretched the length of the house with a view in back of their lovingly kept garden that ran all the way to the Charles River. There were two little alcoves for their two desks, and it was here, amid bookcases, piano, portrait busts, and paintings, that the fields entertained constantly, local and visiting literary stars, new authors they were encouraging, and the artists, musicians, actors, politicians, pastors, scientists, reformers, the circle of their old and new friends. They all came to Charles Street, where Willa Cather wrote, learning and talent met, enjoying good food and good wit and rare vintages. Henry James said, the fields were addicted to every hospitality and every benevolence, addicted to talk and wit. In 1867, Charles Dickens came on a reading tour to America. He was welcomed to Boston by a dinner party at Charles Street with Longfellow, Emerson, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the scientist Louis Agassiz, the politician George Hoare, the critic Charles Eliot Norton, and Annie. <laughs> well, Annie thought of herself as a poet, but her literary legacy was in short biographies, remembering such friends as Hawthorne, Whittier, and Stowe. In her letters and diaries, she delights in the roars of laughter that her husband, Jamie, could bring on with his stories. And Annie herself had a gamut of laughter that guided conversation. Willa Cather wrote, I had seldom heard so young, so merry, so musical a laugh, a laugh with countless shades of relish and appreciation and kindness in it, and on occasion a short laugh from that same source could put an end to a conversation that had taken an unfortunate turn, absolutely dismiss and silence impertinence or presumption. One lived in that harmonious atmosphere that she created, an atmosphere in which one seemed absolutely safe from everything ugly. Annie was at the forefront of progressive social causes. She was among those who worked to found the coeducational Boston University, to prod Harvard to offer women degrees through Radcliffe, and in 1878, most importantly for me, to found Girls Latin School. She favored social work over impersonal charity, organized home visits to assess real human needs, safe, clean housing, and collective workspaces for women. Her one bestseller was a long tract called um, how to Help the Poor. Saloons had taken men right out of society. She established coffee shops as cheap social spaces for all. Those were called Holly Tree coffee, coffee Rooms after Dickens' short story. She favored women's suffrage, but softly. She was an abolitionist by her birthright and a vocal advocate of the rights of black Americans. Once she asked a Southern visitor whether there was any animus at home against Washington, the stranger thought of the first president and said, of course not, but later was told that she had been asking about the scientist, author, and educator, Booker T. Washington, whom she had entertained at Charles Street. She promoted ideas of dress reform to combat frivolous and unhealthy fashion. 
Her recommendation was for a woman to find a style that suited her and then, when she needed a new dress, to copy the old pattern. The fields were not wealthy by Gilded Age measures, but they, offer, they, could, offer, they could afford uh, constant entertaining, four servants, and bountiful private charity. In the mid-1870s, they built themselves a charming summer cottage on top of Thunderbolt Hill in Manchester-by-the-Sea. In 1881, after 27 years of marriage, Jamie died of a heart attack with Annie at his side. Friends worried that Annie would not recover from her grief. Her friend, the poetess Lily Fairchild, came over from Commonwealth Ave to stay with her. But within the year, she had published a memoir of her husband and at age 47 had fallen in love again, this time with Sarah Orne Jewett, the novelist from Maine, 15 years younger. Henry James wrote that Sarah had come to Mrs. Fields as an adoptive daughter, both a sharer and a sustainer. In her letters, Sarah frequently adopted childish diction and called Annie Fuffy and Mosety. Her name for herself was Pinny, because as a child she'd been called a pinhead. Sarah had her own room in Charles Street, and for her writing she settled into the alcove which had been Jamie's. They worried about each other's health and stresses, and were emotional and day-to-day -day supports for each other. They lived together more than half of every year, winters with their urban pleasures in Boston, and summers in the cottage on Thunderbolt Hill. They traveled together, and when apart, they wrote, they wrote each other daily. It was the quintessential Boston marriage, known and approved by society. When not in Boston, Sarah maintained her family home in Maine with her mother and her older unmarried sister, Mary. Annie probably first met Sargent when he came to Boston in 1887. Sargent was born in Italy in 1856 of American parents, and his contacts with Americans were <clears throat> from art school in Paris and chance friendships with other expatriates. <clears throat> Henry James knew Sargent from his Paris days. In fact, it was James who persuaded Sargent to move his portrait practice to London when Madame X dropped a wet blanket on it in Paris. Nobody else knew as well as James did that Sargent was fluent in French, German, and Italian, a voracious reader in all those languages, and had a memory full of poetry. He was a concert-quality pianist. He simply could not speak in public, but among artists and musicians, he was a congenial comrade, and in a circle of friends, a pleasant conversationalist, with social manners that were perfect and easy. In 1886, Henry James brought Mrs. Gardner to Sargent's London studio, <clears throat> and she got him to promise a portrait of herself to rival Madame X. Annie was a friend of the entire James family, and she had, recommend, uh, she had recommended one of Henry James' early articles for the Atlantic. And Annie, like most, most Bostonians, was introduced to Sargent in October 1887, by James's flattering uh, essay in Harper's Weekly. Sargent had, devoted many, uh, had developed many Boston contacts in London and Paris. The watercolorist Edward Darley Boyd and his wife, and you've met his daughters, 
T. Jefferson Coolidge, who bought the sensational El Jaleo right off the wall of the Paris Salon in 1882. Then Charles Fairchild, a Boston banker, commissioned Sargent to paint Robert Louis Stevenson for his poetic and literature-loving wife, Lily Fairchild, who'd read Treasure Island to her five young boys. Another American, Henry Marquand, trustee of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, asked Sargent to come to America to paint his wife. Sargent hesitated. He was just building his portrait practice in London, so finally he asked double his current fee. Marquand accepted, and Sargent had to come to Newport. He had old friends there from the Navy's European squadron. As a boy in Nice, he had met Admiral Case and his sons, and the wife of Admiral Goodrich had taught his Sunday school in Florence. One commission led to another, including some Vanderbilts, and when the Newport season ended, he followed them home to New York. Then he finally made it to Boston and the commissions that awaited him there, painting close friends of Annie's, Mrs. Gardner and the Fairchilds. He stayed with the Boyts at 65 Mount Vernon Street, just a few minutes' walk from Annie's. It was the coming out year for their oldest daughter, Florence. With so many friends in common, he surely went to Annie's salon that autumn. We surely hope so, because Annie was so sick with bronchitis after Christmas that she took to bed and Sarah had to hire a nurse. She was still convalescent in February, and so she missed Sargent's own formal Boston debut when his one-man show of 22 paintings ran for two weeks at the St. Patolf Club. Sargent himself had slipped away to New York because he was incapable of making any public speech, even thank you to a toast. Sargent returned to England in triumph. He had gone to America with one commission and had, and had done 16, plus another six portraits as gifts to friends. He had learned the social ins and outs of presenting a debutante in Boston society, and he was richer in friends, his sisters and their families, his sitters and their families, particularly the Fairchild clan. The second daughter, Lucia, became his greatest fan and kept a diary. He'd also made new artist friends, particularly Isabella Stewart Gardner's young cavalier, Dennis Bunker. Back in England in the summer of 1888, Sargent took care to stay close to his father, who had suffered a stroke. He had a horror of not being there when he was needed. He gathered his summer for a long sum he gathered his family for a long summer in the English countryside, and fellow and fellow artists and friends gathered around them. It was the summer of his sister Violet's little blue cap, Lucia Fairchild's diary portraits of Sargent and his sisters and his circle and Dennis Bunker's crush on Violet, which Violet unrequited. As winter came, Sargent shifted the family to milder Bournemouth and his father to nursing care. But early in 1889, the Académie des Beaux-Arts named Sargent to the committee of the Spring Salon and a Légion d'honneur besides. It was such a gracious gesture of apology for the Madame X misunderstanding that Sargent accepted and went to Paris. His friend Giovanni Boldini painted him twice, looking slim and handsome as Lucia described him in those years. But it was that April when Sargent was in Paris that his father died in Bournemouth.
Now, Sargent was pater familius at age 33, and the future of his 19-year-old sister Violet was his responsibility. She was already being courted, sort of, by Francis Ormond, the indolent heir of a Swiss cigar fortune, and her watchful brother seriously disapproved. He brought her back to Boston for, um, he brought her back for a Boston debut in 1890. She lived with the Fairchilds at 191 Commonwealth Avenue in the social swim with the two sisters, Sally and Lucia, who had already become her friends in England. Sargent took himself off to New York, leaving the Boston scene to Violet. She had the cachet of the Sargent name without the shadow of a hovering brother, and Sargent had more Vanderbilts to paint and artist friends from Paris and England. <clears throat> Another acquaintance from England was the American architect Stanford White. He had just finished a mansion on Gramercy Park to be the home of the great tragedian Edwin Booth and his Players Club. This was a public celebration of the American professional theater and of acting as an art. The members commissioned Sargent to paint Booth's portrait for a place of honor there. Actors are professional portrayers themselves, and Sargent had mixed success portraying them. His Ellen Terry as Lady Macbeth was a big hit in 1889. Not so much her touring partner, the actor-manager Henry Irving. He could not hold a pose as one of his soulful characters, so Sargent painted him as a shrewd theater manager, and Irving destroyed the picture. <laughs> Edwin Booth nearly made the same mistake. He was in weak health in January 1890 and about to begin a tour, but he wanted that portrait for the players, so he made time. The first tries were flops, they both agreed, and Sargent scraped out the face and started over. Booth had to take breaks, and while he did, Sargent went to the piano and played Liszt, the Hungarian Rhapsodies, especially the rousing number 15, the Rakochi March. The result was Booth with his resting face, Shakespeare's Brutus. On May 7, 1890, the architects of the Boston Public Library Stanford White and his partners, McKim and Mead, hosted a dinner at the Players for Sargent and his painter friend, Edwin Austin Abbey. The architects wanted the artist to take on the task of decorating the library, and the artists agreed, but it was up to the library trustees. Booth commissioned portraits of his theater colleagues, Lawrence Barrett and Joseph Jefferson, also for the Players, and they were in, conveniently in their summer places on the South Shore. Sargent promptly did Barrett at his summer ho house in Cohasset. Barrett was a natural sitter and posed no self-presentation problems, but he was not well, and Sargent wasn't happy with the result. The great comedian Joe Jefferson had made a fortune in the role of Rip Van Winkle. He built a trophy house, Crow's Nest, right across Buttermilk Bay from the cottage where we do our writing. Sargent went for the housewarming in August 1890, and he did Jefferson twice. <laughs> for the Players' Commission, Jefferson posed as Dr. Pangloss in The Heir at Law, a century-old comedy that he was reviving. 
For his own pleasure, Sargent also did an oil sketch of the natural, affable Jefferson, not in character. Jefferson was an avid painter himself, and he shared his studio with Sargent and helped him produce a couple of monotype etchings there. We haven't wandered very far from Annie Adams' fields. All five of those theatrical sitters were familiars of the Charles Street Salon, and the new Boston Public Library, free, free to All, was a project dear to her heart. As a lifelong Athenaeum member, she knew that the unprivileged people of Boston needed as good an, um, access to information, science, and art as she had. These commissions and others brought him up from New York, weeks in Worcester, to Milton, to the North Shore. In August, uh, Violet was done with the Newport season of regattas and parties and her obligatory visit to Niagara Falls and had moved with the Fairchilds to Nahant. Sargent was uh, relaxed and witty among familiar friends like the Fairchilds. Here is a snatch of conversation that Lucia recorded. Sally observed, I can't bear Dickens. And John, I'm glad to hear you say so. I can't either, but I should never have dared to say so. Why, a great many people agree with you. Do they? I thought that one was always set down as a bad character, something terrible, if one didn't like Dickens. They were thinking of Annie, who adored Dickens and had his youthful portrait hanging in her great salon. John painted both Violet and Sally and the youngest Fairchild boy in the hunt, but Mrs. Fields was in Manchester just up the coast and he had an open invitation to join her and Miss Jewett. While Nahant was a juvenile zoo, Thunderbolt Hill was conducive to work the conversation was serious, and the stay turned out to be absolutely delightful. Sarah left before Sargent did on that visit, so we have her account in a letter. Quote, I have left Manchester, but Mr. Sargent is still there, and we have enjoyed him very much. It is always such an interesting world to me, the picture world, and he is such a serious man, as my dear old grandfather used to say and so intent and wholehearted about his work, I am sure you would find great pleasure in what he says and is. Sarah, Sergeant had added Sarah to his circle of friends too, and for the rest of her life he always ended his letters to Annie with kindest regards to Miss Jewett. As the weather cooled and the season began again in Boston, the Fairchilds went back to Commonwealth Ave and Sargent commuted between Boston and Manchester. There was music and theater in Boston, commissions in Medford. He and Violet were at Bunker's wedding on October 2nd, then back to Manchester for commissions and for our picture of Annie. It was his thank you gift for her hospitality. Sarah described her. She was at least five foot seven and looked taller than most women. There was something severe and even hard in her face. Um, that gave it a look of great power. But children always ran to her like an old friend. Sargent knew that he had to avoid flattery, and the portrait seems quite heartfelt. It shows her as able and resolved, a mature idealist. 
After that visit in Man Manchester and painting her portrait, <clears throat> we have several short notes from Sargent to Annie that tell how he likes being her friend and being with her. She sent him the tickets for the symphony concert on Saturday, October 18th. He answered, My dear Mrs. Fields, the tickets came today and it will be a great pleasure to use them. I will probably take one of the Fairchilds. You kindly ask if I can come on Tuesday or Wednesday evening. I'm sorry to say I have engagements for both, but that will not delay me seeing you, for I am rejoicing in half holidays now and only work in the mornings. Mrs. Fairchild has shown me such a beautiful photograph of you. I wonder if you could spare one. And the next day, my dear Mrs. Fields, I am so grateful to you for that exquisite photograph, which I shall always keep, both as a thing of beauty and as a dear remembrance. That Saturday morning, Lily Fairchild read aloud from the paper that Gus Case, the 40-year-old son of Admiral Case, had drowned on Friday in Bristol Harbor, just north of Newport, trying to secure his sailboat in a severe gale. Sergeant was stunned. As a 10-year-old in Nice, he had met Gus and his bro brother Dan. Lucia wrote in her diary, he at once decided to go down and see if he could be any help to the family and took the 11 o'clock train to Papa Squash. That was Sergeant being Sergeant, showing up to carry a share of the family's grief, even though there was nothing else he could do. He was back in Boston that evening and went to symphony with Sally Fairchild, and afterwards he told Lucia that he liked the third movement of the Brahms, but didn't care much for a Wolfram song from Tannhäuser. That October, Sargent was still waiting with dimming hopes for the BPL trustees to make a contract offer after five months of silence. Lucia took note. He is very nervous and tired, although he is so very self-controlled that unless one knew him pretty well, one wouldn't know it. But his hands twist and move all the time, and when he sits cross-legged, he jiggles his feet. But Annie Adams Fields had come back to town from Manchester, and so had Isabella Stewart Gardiner after her summer in Venice, the Grand Dame of Literature and the Grand Dame of Art, hostesses of the library trustees, if they behaved properly, shared their enthusiasm for Sargent. The trustees gave their commitment to Sargent's and Abby's mural proposals. On the two walls assigned to Sargent, he wanted to paint religious history. Mrs. Gardner recommended travel to Egypt and the Holy Land to help him visualize the Bible. He and Violet packed up, left Boston on November 3rd, had a farewell dinner with the bunkers in New York, and sailed on the 5th. Violet was still resolved to marry that Francis Ormond person. They caught up with their mother and Emily in Marseille, and the little family took a last opportunity to travel together as in the old days. When Sargent picked up his mail in Cairo, he had a new shock. Dennis Bunker had died after a short illness only a few weeks after their dinner in New York. Another letter was from Annie, and we know about it from his answer. He began by flirting. My dear Mrs. Fields, it was a great pleasure to get your kind note and to know that I have been in your thoughts, for you have taken up your abode in mine and I shall keep you a prisoner. He continued, many thanks for sending me the surprising article. That was the art interchange of December 20th, 
describing the Academy show in New York, where Sargent's portraits of Barrett and Jefferson were being shown. The next column over has an article about a Rubens on display in New York. The title, Triumph of Religion, resonated with Sargent, and that was the name he chose for his BPL murals. Back in Paris in 1890, Sargent prevented Violet's elopement by a compromise, a society wedding with both families involved. The Boston Circle was represented there by the Fairchilds. Did we mention that Lucia kept a diary? Then Sargent squeezed his portrait industry in London into a winter season and for the summer moved to Fairford with a barn studio where he and Abby worked on their BPL projects. Lucia recorded Sargent's developing thoughts about the murals, how to represent the prophets, and so on. Lucia's diary shows that he was already planning the entire BPL program. He thought Lucia should read Ernest Renan's controversial Life of Jesus, and they discussed the Sermon on the Mount. Lucia was an artist herself. She emulated Sargent by painting one of the historical murals for the Women's Pavilion of the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Her charming mural, Women of Plymouth, is the only one that survives. Later in life, she devoted her art to miniature portraits, and the Athenaeum has her watercolor of Annie, copied from Lily's photograph. And it's upstairs for you to see afterwards. In the winter of 1892... My go. Oh. It's mine. Annie and... <laughs> 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 we'll quarrel later. Uh, Annie and Sarah sailed to Europe. They planned to spend the winter in Italy and only turn north in the spring. Sargent tried to get a visit. My dear Mrs. Fields, Mrs. Fairchild writes me that you are on this side of the world and also Miss Jewett. Please let me know when you come through London. It would be a great disappointment not to see you. I will be in London or in the country within hailing distance, and a line from you will evoke me with a suddenness that may give you a shock. With kind remembrances to Miss Jewett. It didn't happen, at least before July. On the 21st, uh, 21st he wrote, I wonder whether you're in London. My work is finished, and I'm going to see my people in the Pyrenees very shortly, within a week. Please write me a line so that I may see you if you reach London before my departure. With kind regards to Miss Jewett. Violet had given birth to Marguerite, the first of her six children in Barcelona, and she was resting, surrounded by her entire sergeant family, in the cool lower Pyrenees. Sargent continued his protective concern for the Ormond children the rest of his life as their father, Francis, drifted in and out of view. In the spring of 1895, both Abby and Sargent had finished their mural canvases. They arrived in Boston on April 12th and were immediately busy with workmen attaching their canvases to the BPL walls where we see them today. Sargent was already invited to Charles Street. He wrote on the 24th, Dear Mrs. Fields, indeed I will come. And if it had not been that up to today, I've been from morning till night on the scaffolding in the library, you would have had my visit before this. The murals were unveiled the next day, <clears throat> and Sargent's first installment, his Jewish wall, was the talk of the town. One critic wrote, Sargent had risen far out of the realms of portrait painting. 
he had soared into the heights of a splendid composition of giving a vast idea picturesque expression in form and color. And then the theme itself was of such magnitude that it revealed a giant where people had been accustomed to thinking of a dilettante. Sargent had started pressing to have his commission enlarged to include the six ceiling lunettes and the stair wall of his hall in the BPL. He was trying out his ideas for the Christian wall in Annie's Green Salon. He left Boston in mid-May 1895 to paint at the Vanderbilt Estate in North Carolina. And a month later, he wrote a note to Annie that he was heading back to Europe. My mother has been very dangerously ill with peritonitis, of which she is recovering satisfactorily, but my sister must have had a great strain of anxiety, and I am anxious to join them at once. In the same letter, he wrote, The books that Mrs. Bell recommends are The Continuity of Religious Thought by Rev. Alex Allen, Progress of Religion by the same author, The Influence of Greek Ideas and Usage on the Christian Church by Dr. Hatch, third vol of Dean Stanley's Jewish Church. Mrs. Bell. She was a gluttonous reader who sometimes came to the Athenaeum three times a day, loaded with books going and coming. I'd say, before or after meals, a tonic may be taken at either time. She was known in Annie's circle for her wit and her strong opinions tersely expressed. There is still a prize named for her at Harvard for the best essay on a literary subject. When a new young man was being introduced to Boston society, she was asked, does he know anything? <laughs> know anything? He doesn't even suspect. <laughs> that, that quip was not about Sargent. She knew his love of books and shared his piano virtuosity, but they disagreed strongly about Renan. She declared that Renan's work was nasty and foul. We imagine that there was a pause in the conversation that evening. Then Annie laughed her silver laugh and said, My dear Mrs. Bell, what books do you suggest Mr. Sargent should read for his guidance? And Mrs. Bell replied, Mr. Sargent, I will send you a list. And later, after, Mr. after Mrs. Bell had gone, and Sargent finished his brandy and wondered if Mrs. Bell would really send a list, Annie replied, most assuredly she shall, and you must send me a copy. <laughs> so Sargent, his homework assignment in hand, his homework assignment in hand went back to Europe for several years of intense work. He opened a second studio in London on Fulham Road, big enough for his BPL murals. His portrait work at Tite Street continued unabated, and he engaged with his fellow artists in the work of the Royal Academy. His mother and his unmarried sister Emily lived nearby in Chelsea in an apartment overlooking the Thames and Sargent dined there whenever he didn't dine out. Annie finally got to London in April 1898. Sargent sent a note. Dear Mrs. Fields, it is a great pleasure to know that you are here. 
And if you will come to an empty studio, I will be delighted to see you and Miss Jewett tomorrow afternoon at five or half past. I despair of being able to go and see you for the next uh, day or two because I am tied up with portrait sittings and duties at the Academy. There is rather a nice exhibition of pictures just coming off at the new gallery in Regent Street, and I have told them to send you tickets for the private view, which is Saturday. Looking forward with great pleasure to seeing you again, and with kind regards to Miss Jewett, yours truly, John S. Sargent. Annie. Annie, okay. Annie wrote <laughs> in her sporadic diary. We saw Sargent in his studio and took tea there with a French gentleman whom he was painting, saw his sketch of Duza, and heard him say that his cartoons for the library were just ready for the full-size painting. We took tea with his mother and his sister Emily also in their pleasant apartment. So now Annie had met the rest of his, her friend's little family about whom he worried. The next year, back in Boston, Annie and Sarah pitched in for a sergeant triumph. Sensational one-man shows are familiar to us now, but were unknown in the 19th century, and shows of living artists had usually been quite modest. But the Boston Art Club organized a mammoth exhibition of his work, about 50 portraits and some 60 more paintings and sketches. The show was advertised for February 20th to March 13th, and it had to be extended a week. The Globe raved. One of the brilliant affairs of the winter season was the reception given at Copley Hall Monday evening when the Sargent exhibition of portraits was inaugurated. The hall with the stage draped with old tapestries and with its walls of green made an artistic background for the, for the rare collection of paintings and there was music by an orchestra. Each Monday and Thursday, there was a tea from three to six. On Monday, March 6th, Annie and Sarah poured, the Globe reported. A large crowd stayed till 6 p.m. Mrs. Fields in black velvet relieved in white lace and a small black bonnet with ostrich chips and Miss Jewett all in black with a picture hat and black plumes who is spending the winter as her guest. A cheekier reporter under the headline, tea more popular than paintings, <laughs> added a bit of gossip. Quote, when an attendant apologized to a woman for keeping her waiting so long for her cup, she cheerfully answered, oh, don't hurry, pray don't. I have always wanted to see dear Mrs. Fields near too, and isn't Miss Jewett a picture? The show was a phenomenal success, open for four weeks with an average attendance of 1,500 people a day. The doors were finally closed on Sunday, March 19th at 6 p.m. as the pictures began to come down from the walls. One critic ventured to warn that Sargent, quote, is a soupçon too elegant and worldly, but the work that he is doing for the Boston Public Library has it in much that should prove broadening and elevating for him. The art club show reminded the Boston public that they had not got the rest of the BPL murals. The expectation of the next installation within two years had stretched to seven, when in 1902 the word was that Sargent would bring the new paintings within the year. Annie invited him to come again to Manchester. He answered at the end of May. 
What a kind note you've written to me. I'm most grateful for it and thankful for the hope that you hold out of some more pleasant days in Manchester. If I get to America before you have come to Boston, you may be sure that I will avail myself of your invitation. If not, you must let me come often to Charles Street. I fear I will not get over before November or December. If Miss Jewett is with you, please remember me very kindly to her, and believe me, yours most sincerely, John S. Sargent. He didn't get to Boston until January of 1903, and before that time both his friends had suffered disasters. At her home in Maine on her 53rd birthday early in September, Sarah had been enjoying a fast drive when the horse tripped and went down, throwing Sarah to a hard fall on her head. She had a concussion and a slow recovery, then permanent infirmity. Annie was distraught and depressed at the first news, particularly when she saw Sarah's awkward, labored handwriting. But Boston life carried on. Annie was at Symphony on Saturday evening, October 24th. The next morning, Isabella Stewart Gardner wrote a kind and caring letter to Sarah that tells the story succinctly. Dear Miss Jewett, I have just come from spending the night in your room at 148 Charles Street. This is why. Mrs. Fields was bad and wicked, overworked, doing Boston with Lady Henry Somerset, Miss Cameron, and Mr. Sanders, and topped off last night by the symphony concert where the heat was intense. The combination was too much for her, and she had a fainting spell. She was sitting in Mrs. Whitman's seat directly behind me, so that when she went out, I went too. When she was in bed at 148 Charles Street with Dr. Williams and a nurse in attendance, I thought perhaps the, the, I thought perhaps the servants might get rattled. So I calmly walked into your room and spent the night. Please forgive. Of course, the doctor was worried as she is not a young girl although she acts like one. But this morning, she is ever so much better. I and she had our breakfasts in our rooms, after which I went into her for a little chat and to scold her for getting overtired. The doctor thinks she must really have great quiet and rest. She likes her nurse, she told me, and looked so pretty in bed this morning with her soft hair about her face. I told her I would write to you. So don't expect letters from her. She sends her love. I shall take her in some flowers tomorrow and do some more scolding. She really must rest. Do take care of yourself, dear. I think of you so much. Don't hurry to get well. Do it slowly. That is better. Affectionately yours, Isabella. Annie's fainting spell had actually been a small stroke. The house on Charles Street was under a pall that winter and spring of Sargent's 1903 visit. Sargent's mother died in London in 1906, while John was in the Galilee searching a lands the landscape for his Sermon on the Mount. He gave up portraits as a profession and did not return to Boston until 1916. There would be no more pleasant... There would be no more pleasant days together in Manchester, and Annie would not get to see all that Sargent had made of his reading list. 
Annie became steadily frailer after her stroke, and Sarah never fully recovered the energy and concentration she needed to write. They never again traveled to uh, Europe. Sarah died in 1909, and and Annie's last book was a collection of Sarah's letters. Annie lived another six years. She quipped to Willa Cather, I was destined to be spared nothing, not even free verse and the cubists. <laughs> Annie died early in 1915 as war raged in Europe. After her death, 148 Charles Street was sold and demolished. The site is now part of the Charles Street garage. But her garden survives, cared for by its neighbors, shut off from Storrow Drive by a high brick wall, a little oasis of green memory. Thank Thank you. you.